Matthew chapter number 14. I'd like to be in reading in verse 23. We'll read our text and then take these needs to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask Him to bless our service. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. The Word of God says that when He, when Jesus had sent multitudes away, He went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, He was there alone. But the ship, the disciples are in this ship, the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. He said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be able to be in your house. Now this evening we've read off prayer requests that have gone straight from the the hearts of these people through these pens onto these cards into our eyes. And Lord, we know that these prayer requests do not end. They don't stay on that card. But Lord, inasmuch as we lift these things up to you, they enter the very throne room of heaven, the very presence of an almighty God, and that you care and that you're interested in what goes on in these matters that we have mentioned this evening. So we pray that you would exercise your will, Lord. We pray that in these matters, sometimes, Lord, we, we, we're asking for something that we believe to be the will of God. Sometimes we're asking for things we really don't know whether it's the will of God or not. But Lord, I know that you know in your heart of hearts what is best for us. We know that the Spirit of God maketh intercession for us, takes these prayers and makes them fit for your ears. So we just simply ask for your will tonight in these matters, whatever they may be, give us wisdom, give us patience, give us understanding, give us obedient hearts as your will is is brought to pass in our lives that we might continue to render praise unto you and to grow in our faith. Now, I pray that you would be in the preaching hour, Lord. May it uplift the name of the Lord Jesus and bring him glory. And may we be drawn closer unto thee. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight out of the passage that we have read. And I think for most people, this is a fairly familiar passage. Uh, there are a handful of storm scenes in the Word of God, and this is probably, I would think, one of the more familiar of them. Uh, probably commentators would, would try to lump some of these storm scenes together, say this is the same as that occasion, and so on and so forth. And I'm really not interested in whatever argument that might provide tonight. Rather, what I'm interested in is looking at this particular passage and especially at the actions of Peter. And I want us to see if we can gain some insight and some comfort and some instruction about the day that we're living in. This took place on a stormy night when the boat was being tossed to and fro and when the disciples' hearts were filled with fear. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there's probably a good analogy between what was Brother King going on in their life on that night and what it feels like society at large is experiencing today. 
I think maybe we could say that what they were experiencing being tossed around in that boat is probably something like what God's people in the church are feeling today, being tossed around in society and in the turbulence of the days that we live in. And I want to preach to you just on this simple thought. What do you do when the storms of life are raging? I don't believe everything Peter did was right, but I think we can learn from the good things he did and from the not-so-good things that he did. And I think we can gain an understanding of how we're to live in these days. I think everybody would agree. There's a lot to disagree about in these days, but I think irrespective of where we might disagree, I think we can all agree that we are living in tumultuous times. I have not heard anybody in quite a while say, you know what I love about America in 2020? How laid back it is. Amen? I haven't heard anybody say that. I think we all acknowledge we are living in turbulent times. And when I read this passage, I, you know, I think if I, if I just look at the disciples and see us, and if I just look at this boat and see life, and if I just look at the storm and, and see the conditions of today, and if I look at Jesus both, both there and now, I see some things that remind me that in some ways this experience is universal to all of us. We all, maybe not in an explicit way, Brother Kim, but we all, to some greater or lesser degree, go through what these disciples were going through. Let me say a word first off tonight about the context of this passage. Because you can't really determine Peter's behavior rightly until you understand everything that was going on. If you just took one verse out of this passage, for instance, if you were to go down and, and take verse number 29 out of this passage, when Jesus said unto Peter, come, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus, you'd think he was the most successful Christian to ever live. By the same token, if you took the very next verse that says, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. You'd probably think maybe he is one of the weakest Christians to ever live. So the context is important, and I think it informs what we're going through. As I said, when I look at this passage, I, I sort of see what we're going through. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you a few examples. Look at verse 23 with me. Now, this reminds me of our day. Let's consider it not just in the context, but in the broader context of what Jesus is doing now. The Bible says that when He had sent the multitudes away. Now, boy, let me say this, that one thing that is true about Bible Christianity today, it is, it is not sought after by the multitudes. Christianity, I want you to listen now, has always been a minority proposition. The Bible says it broads the way that leadeth to destruction. The narrow is the way that leadeth unto life everlasting. And while there have been times throughout human history when some uh, semblance of Christendom has been put forth as a matter of public policy or, or social acceptable behavior, I don't believe Bible Christianity itself. I'm talking about Christianity the way that Jesus preached Christianity. I don't think that that type of life has ever been in broad acceptance. They're entering a time right now when the multitudes have gone. And the only ones that are left are the ones that love Him the most. Can I tell you, we're living in a time uh, today, one of the great convulsive actions and events that's happening in the day that we live in is the herd is starting to be thinned as regards this thing of serving the Lord. It used to be easy to serve God, at least socially speaking, but I fear, my friends, that we are coming into a time where it's going to cost us something to claim the name of Christ, and the multitudes 
are going away. And the Bible says he went into a mountain apart to pray. That reminds me of Jesus. Because where is he right now? He's in a mountain apart to pray. You say, what do you mean? Well, he's in the mount of God. I'm not talking about Zion. I'm talking about he's in the very presence of God the Father, seated on the right hand of God the Father. And what's he doing there? The Hebrews writer said he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Calls him the high priest of our profession. He's interceding right now on our behalf. But you know what that means? If he's up there, it does mean he's not down here. And verse 23, I see that this was a time when the son was absent. He had left the immediate presence of his disciples. Now, something that is blissfully uh, blissfully attended to in this passage is that never for a moment are the disciples outside of Jesus's knowledge or awareness. He knows where they're at. You say, how do you know that preacher? Because he went walking to them on the sea. It's in the fourth watch of the night. It's dark. Undoubtedly, there would have been no way for him to merely uh, deduce or divine where they were. How did he walk out to them on that stormy sea? Well, he knew where they was the whole time. Can I say, even though he's not with us bodily, he knows where we are the whole time. And never for a moment did they leave the Savior's heart and mind. He went apart to pray and we're not told what he was praying for. But undoubtedly, if the rest of Scripture is any indication, when he knew the disciples were struggling, he prayed for them. He told Peter later on uh, that Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But he said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. In other words, he knew when Peter was struggling, uh, Peter knew that Jesus was praying for him. I don't know what all Jesus was praying for, but I would venture a guess that the disciples were praying part of it. He was up in this mountain. He was communing with the Father. But undoubtedly, he was praying for his disciples. And the Bible says when evening was come, he was there alone, meaning he was not present with his disciples. That's descriptive of the age we're living in. I understand there is a sense in which Jesus is everywhere because Jesus is God. God is omnipresent. There's never a place. You can't find a corner of all existence that God is not present in. The psalmist said it eloquently when he said, if I, if I make my bed in hell, behold, Behold, thou art there. If I ascend into the heavens, thou art there. He said, if I take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, thou art there. In other words, God is omnipresent. We also understand that Jesus robed himself in flesh when he walked amongst men. And he did not forfeit that fleshly vessel whenever he rose from the dead, but rather that mortal put on immortality. His his uh, glorified body was just that. It is a body. He is still the man Christ Jesus as much as he is uh, God the Son and God in the flesh. And he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at. If he's there, that means he ain't here. Now, I know in a sense he is here, and I'm not disputing that. But I'm saying, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't these storms of life be easier if Jesus was physically, visibly, bodily present with us? But that's not the reality of things. Let me say I'm thankful there's coming a day it will be. But right now, that's not the case. And the church, is uh, the bride is absent from the bridegroom right now. Uh, the, how could the bridegroom come back for the bride if the bride was already with him? Now, all this seems simple, but I'm trying to get you to understand that what we're looking at here reminds me of this day. And one of the ways it does is the son was absent. Let me say number two. Look at verse uh, 24. The Bible says, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea. Now, I could use all sorts of imagery, and maybe you could, maybe a person could do that. Certainly large bodies of water in Scripture seem to be symbolic of the vast multitudes of uh, humanity and so on and so forth. But suffice it to say that they are out in the middle of this sea in a similar way to you and I are out in the middle of this world. Here we are living this life. Uh, Jesus never asked God to take us out of the world. He asked the Father to keep us from the world. 
but not to take us out of the world. He could have done that, but He did not do that. He chose to leave us in this world. And as such, it reminds me, this little ship out in the midst of the sea, so insignificant, so weak, such a meager vessel, reminds me sort of how the church looks today in this world that we live in. And what was happening to it? Well, the Bible says it was tossed with waves. Tossed with waves. And I think that certainly not only the the professing church, (laughs) but certainly the possessing church is being tossed with waves today. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, not just everything that carries the label Christianity, and there's a lot of stuff that's straight out of hell that carries the label Christianity today. But I'm saying particularly, undoubtedly, God's people are being uh, tossed about in this world. My wife was reading a statistic to me on the way in to church tonight that anti-Christian attacks in Europe have gone up over 200% in the past uh, 10 years. Uh, Or, well, really it was from 08 to 2018. 200%. And undoubtedly, the world is is growing ever more hostile towards Bible Christianity. Hey, listen, I don't say that to make you a victim. I'd never try to make a victim out of people that Jesus Christ made victors out of. I'm not saying we're victims. I'm just trying to get you to understand the score right now. I'm trying to get you to understand the environment right now. I'm not saying we're victims. We're the last thing from victims. We're victors through Jesus Christ. I'm just trying to get you to understand that we're in a similar situation. The Bible says this was why the wind was contrary. Now, the wind, as far as imagery in your Bible, most of the time it is equated with the idea of the Holy Ghost. And I think undoubtedly we could say the Holy Ghost is not contrary to the church. But, you know, when I think of the wind, I think of that that unseen force of the environment. That's what the wind is. It is an unseen force of the environment. You don't see the wind, you see the product of the wind. You don't see it, you feel it. You can't reach out and grab it, but it's there nonetheless, and it has the power to flatten buildings and to throw down great landmarks. And, you know, that kind of reminds me of some of the opposition the church faces, Brother Ken, because sometimes it's hard to quantify it, and it's hard to characterize it. People call you conspiracy theorists if you claim that there is a mystery of iniquity that works in the world and claim that you're being paranoid. But I think as Bible believers, we understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It ain't stuff we can grab a hold of, but that doesn't make the battle any less real in this day that we live in. There is a mystery of iniquity. There is a satanic conspiratorial force that you can't reach out and grab a hold of, but that don't mean it ain't big enough to move mountains and to cast things down. It exists. For Bible believers, we must believe that that exists. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that's your enemy is a part of it. It doesn't mean that everybody that I may not like is a part of it, but it does mean it does exist. And it is ever-present as an opposition against the presence of the church in society today. And uh, so, I, you know, I see it was a time not only when the sun was absent, but when the sea was angry. And when God's people, the disciples in this instance, were having to face an unseen opposition, an unseen force that you couldn't reach out and grab a hold of, but you had to fight it nonetheless. And they were dealing with a world that was just rocking and reeling. That was their world. If, if, I, had, if I had to describe 2020, I'd describe it a lot like being in a boat in the middle of a storm. Feels like the very ground is moving out from underneath you. Feels like you're being thrown back and forth and back and forth. And that certainly is our experience. But then I see an encouraging thing in this passage. Look at verse 25. The Bible says that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. I'm reminded that this was a time when the sun was absent and the sea was angry, but it was also a time when the Savior was approaching. 
He was coming back to them. That's what He was doing. He was coming to where they were. He wasn't asking them to sail that boat to where He was. He was coming to where they were. And they needed to be encouraged by that fact. Can I tell you something? Jesus is coming back. I don't know when precisely that will happen. It's not my business to know. Uh, it's just simply mine to look and to labor and to love the Savior. That's my responsibility. But I do need to keep in mind that blessed truth that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. But then I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 26. Now, I find this very interesting. When the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. You know what I think is interesting about that? I'll go ahead and give you my, my point on my outline. The saints were alarmed. They were troubled at this. They saw Jesus coming back, Brother Larry, but they didn't understand what they were seeing was Jesus coming back. And because of that, Brother Ken, they were troubled. Do you hear what I just said? They were seeing Jesus coming back, but because they didn't realize that what they were seeing was Jesus coming back, it troubled them, it bothered them, it scared them, it alarmed them. i got to tell you, i got a little empathy with them. <laughs> I probably would have been a little a, a little weirded out by it too, just being honest. But boy, that reminds me of the day we're living in, because Christians seem to spend this 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 uh, they seem to live in this perpetual crisis between between affirming the reality of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus and being completely blindsided that the world is getting in shape for Jesus to come back. It's remarkable to me because in one breath we'll say, well, thank the Lord Jesus is coming back. And in the next breath, people will say, what's the matter with people? It's getting crazy out there. Well, yeah, it is. You know why? Because Jesus is coming back. You see, if we don't keep a scriptural, spiritual, biblical worldview and perspective on world matters, we miss. We don't just miss the forest for the trees. We miss everything. We miss everything. The truth is, I, I hate to tell you this, and I don't know what will be the immediate circumstances and the immediate... I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, never claim to. Nobody else does either. But I do know this, that on the whole, don't expect things to get better. They won't. Uh, that, that's wrong, man. That's, that's millennial thinking that we're just going to utopian our way into a better way of living. That's not how it goes. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says that perilous times will come. My Bible says evil men and seducers wax worse and worse. So isn't it funny how we as Bible believers, the storm's raging around us and Jesus is coming back and at the same time we're leaping for joy that He's coming back and then at the same time we're fainting out of weariness because He's coming back. I'm just telling you, it's a time when the saints are alarmed and you're seeing you're seeing people get all nervous about the fact that this world is is boiling and seething, and I understand it. And I think a lot of it is just disgust, and I think a lot of it is sadness that there's a way of life that we don't anticipate ever coming back. And I understand all that, but I'm just telling you as a Bible believer, we have every reason to anticipate things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. No election will change that, don't matter which way it goes. No change on the court system is going to derail that immutable and, un I'll get it said here in a second, indefatigable a truth that this world's going to just keep getting worse and worse and worse. So when I look at the context of this passage, it reminds me of the day that we're living in. But then I notice some counsel from this passage. And I want you to notice it with me. Look down at verse 27. The Bible says, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So 
if we're going to live in these days, and we've got to live in these days, I mean, the, the only other option is, is tragically unthinkable, and I don't believe it's the will of God for anybody. So if we're going to live in this day, and, and that is what God has called us to do, is to live in this day, we need to know how to live the right way. And I think in this passage we find a few important uh, principles that we need to employ. The first thing I notice is this. So they're coming, uh, Jesus is coming back to him, and they see him, but they don't know it's him. So they cry out for fear. But Jesus spake unto them and said, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So here's what they needed to understand. They needed to understand that what was coming towards them was perfectly planned and expected and was exactly what they needed at that moment because it was Jesus coming back to them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say it this way. You know, the first thing we need to do is look for his return. He was saying, it's all right. Don't be nervous. It's just me. You know what we need in this day when we look at a world that seems like it's coming apart at the seams? We need to open the precious, blessed word of God and we need to be reminded it's okay. It's just him. He's in control. He's coming back. It's happening exactly like he said it was. You know what should upset us is if it wasn't doing what the Bible said. We'd have a lot more to be upset about, wouldn't we? Uh, But as has always been the case, the Word of God is true. And because of that, we need to instead live in a conscious mind frame day by day that what we're seeing unfold around us is just the product of the fact that the world is readying itself for Jesus to come back. We've talked at length about this in our Sunday school class. We preached, have been preaching through Daniel for a thousand years and, and we've, as we've been going through it, we, we've talked a lot about world events and how global politics is shaping and, and patterns and things of that sort. And I'm just here to tell you, uh, there, there are certain things that, that politically you and I might be sympathetic with. I, I love the idea of nations retaining their identity and, and having, you know, strong borders and having order and law and all of those things. And I think that's good. I'm for that I'd vote for that I do vote for that but I got news for you this this push of a of a global one world community that dis- dissolves the idea of borders that dissolves the idea of sovereignty that dissolves any of these things that's the direction things are headed so why do you believe that preacher because the Bible tells me that's how everything's going to wind up is there's going to be a man that stands up in the midst of the turmoil and says let's just all break down everything and be one big large community and I'll solve all of your problems. And the world is going to fall at his feet. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not being a fatalist. Hey, I believe in heaven. I believe the victory's won. I'm not being a fatalist. I'm not being a pessimist. I think Jesus is coming back. But I'm just telling you, these things in this world, they're going in a direction that's not going to change. And it's and the reason is not because mankind is evolving. <laughs> the man it's not because mankind is becoming more more sociological and politically and ideological ideologically advanced. That's not why. No, rather the reason the world is moving in this direction is because it's exactly what God said was going to happen in His Word. Just saying, we look around and we say, "Well, what a mess we're in." That's exactly right, and the world is in a mess when Jesus comes back. So you know what we ought to do is instead of just wringing our hands all the time, we ought to take courage, man. Uh, what does the Bible say that people ought to do when they know the Master is coming back? They ought to, and I know this is talking about the Jewish nation, but I think there's an application to the church too, that they ought to lift up their heads, they ought to look up for your redemption draw if not. So in other words, uh, you know, the Bible says this, says that we ought to uh, provoke one another unto good works. And then it says this, Brother Ken, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know what that means? 
We ought to be able to see that day approaching. We ought to be looking for it. It ought to be on our, it ought to be on our radar. Now I understand you don't know the day and I don't know the day and, and, and I'm a believer in the imminence of the second coming of Christ. I, I believe that it could happen a thousand years from now, undoubtedly, scripturally speaking, but I look at a world and I'm just telling you, I just, Brother Fred, I see the day approaching. I see that the world is getting ready for it. And that's how we ought to live. We ought to see the day approaching. So we ought to look for His return. Number two, look at verse 28. The Bible says that Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, Bid me come unto thee on the water. I'm fascinated by this. Uh, for this reason, the Bible tells us that after the Lord Jesus reaches down, rescues Peter from the, from the rising waves, verse number, verse number 32 says, and when they were come into the ship. So here's Jesus coming to him. And here's Peter who wants to go towards Jesus. And they're both getting ready to turn back around and walk right back to the ship. So in other words, the image is not that of here's Jesus on the shore and Peter saying, well, I'm going to save him some, some, uh, you know, steps and I, I'm going to save him some work and I'm going to get over to the shore. No, they were headed back for the boat. So why did Peter want to get out of the boat in the first place? Now, you might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think Peter just wanted, I think one, he wanted to exercise his faith, but then two, I, I think he wanted to be like Jesus, but then three, and this is real simple, I think he wanted to get closer to him sooner. I think he wanted to be with, I think he knew he was safer with Jesus on the waves than he would be without Jesus in the boat. And so here's what he wanted. He just wanted to be close to him. And that's a reminder to me that in these days we need to pursue a closeness with him. Preacher, I am close to him. Get closer. Get closer. You know, the Bible promises if we draw nigh unto God, he'll draw nigh unto us. It doesn't say we reach a point of critical mass where we've drawn close enough and we can just now phone it in, you know. All right, I'm close enough. I'm good. Now, sadly, that's how a lot of us tend to think about it in life. You know, that we get certain things marked off in our in our personal Christian goals. And once we attain that place, we believe we're where we need to be. But the truth is, none of us is where we need to be until we look exactly identically like Jesus. Now, I understand. I don't believe in the eradication of the flesh on this side of the grave. I'm not saying we can reach sinless perfection. Uh, but I am saying this, that no matter where we're at, there's always room to get closer. You know what I would have said to Peter? I would have said, why don't you just wait? He's coming over here anyway. But in that moment, again, Peter was more spiritual than I am. Probably in every moment. Probably at his very worst, he was more spiritual than me. But I'm saying certainly in that moment, Peter said, I know he's coming to me, but I don't listen now. I don't want to wait till he comes to me for me to come to him. Remember what Paul said? Paul said this, not as I were already perfect, either had already attained. But he said, I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Now, if you've been around here any amount of time, you've heard me preach on this. But Paul tells us exactly what he's talking about. Later on, he says, my vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. He says that there'll come a day when he'll be just like Jesus. And after all, that's what God saved us for, right? To make us just like Jesus. That's why Paul was apprehended. Then Paul says, if that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended. Can I tell you it in good hillbilly East Tennessee language? He said, I'm trying to grab hold of what grabbed hold of me. In other words, God wants me to be like Jesus. One day I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm certainly not already like Jesus, but I'm trying to be like Jesus before Jesus comes to me and makes me like Jesus. In other words, he's headed to the boat. And Peter said, yeah, but I, want to, I don't want to wait for him to get here for me to be in his presence. I want to get into his presence before he ever gets here. That's what Paul was saying. 
in different words, but the exact thing. He want, God wants to make me like Jesus. And I will be when Jesus comes back. But I don't want to wait for Him to get back for me to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus as soon as possible. So I think we ought to pursue a closeness with Him. Number three, look at verse 29. The Bible says that uh, Jesus said to him, Come. So it was the will of God that he step out of this boat. No question about it. Jesus said, Come. And Peter, when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You know what I thought about? There was no way for him to get to Jesus except by faith. Scientific fact could not get him to Jesus. Now, God's not against scientific fact. You understand that science is the study of matter and, and, and existence and, and it's, you know, observable, uh, you know, scientific study. It's the examination of things and we give a lot of definitions. But suffice it to say, science is the examination of the handiwork of God. That's what it is. That's what Isaac Newton said. I, Isaac Newton said that, that science is, is uh, looking for God's signature. That's what he said. So God's not against scientific fact, but you just understand scientific fact couldn't have got him there. It took faith to get him there. Faith was the only thing that could put anything firm underneath his foot when he stepped out of that boat. He could only get to Jesus, listen now, by walking by faith. That was the only way. When he stepped out of that boat, he had no reason to believe except for a one-word answer from Jesus. Jesus said, come. And in that, Peter had all he needed to hang his faith on. He had the belief that it was the will of God. He had to believe that God had the wherewithal, Brother Charlie, to get him there. Uh, he, he had to believe that God expected and demanded out of him a, an appropriate response to that promise. He had everything he needed in that one word when Jesus said, come. And so he stepped out by faith and began to walk on the water. And so, I, you know, I thought about this. We In these days, we need to keep moving forward in faith. He could have said, I'm going to stay in the boat and wait for Jesus to get to me. He said, no, 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 that's not good enough. I'm going to go to him. And the only way I can get to him is by faith. Because the only way in these days, probably the only way in any days, but certainly the only way in these days we can keep moving forward is by faith. We're going to have to trust that God's able. God's able to protect us. God is able to, to enlarge our, our ministry, our responsibility, our, our scope of, of influence in people's lives. God is able to provide for us and meet our financial needs. God is able to give us boldness in the days of, of witnessing. God is able to do all these things. The only way you can move forward is in faith. Because the only way He could have gone anywhere was by faith. I mean, what was He going to do? Walk circles around the boat? The only way, you listen, the only way he could get to Jesus was by faith. But beyond that, the only way he could move forward was by faith. It's the only way he could do it. And it's a reminder that we need to keep moving forward. Don't rest on your laurels and say, well, you know, I'm just going to clock out until Jesus comes. Keep moving forward in faith. Look at verse 30. The Bible says, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He Beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, Save me. So here we find out the wrong thing to do. Now, I'm not going to be the person to criticize Peter uh, because I have never walked on water. Never once. But I do think that the Bible is extra careful to describe Brother Ken for us what he did wrong. The problem was he saw the wind boisterous. That's what it says. These words matter, right? When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. There's a progression there. It started with him seeing the wind Boisterous. So what happened? He took his eyes off Jesus. We got to maintain our focus on him. I'm just telling you, there's enough rot trying to fight its way into our homes every day, every minute, every second. 
uh, trying to get its way in. And listen, I know, I know it's easy to say, well, throw away your phones, throw away your TVs, throw away your laptops. Yeah. And somebody down to Weigel's will catch you at the gas pump and say, did you hear what just happened? I'm just telling you, it's going to take more than just that strategy. You see, here's the reality. When he took his eyes off of Jesus, it gave room. You listen now? Because you're always looking at something. Sometimes I say things and I don't even realize they're profound until I've already said them. I guess that's so God can get the credit. Because I sure enough didn't think of that. But are you listening? You're always looking at something. You're always looking at something. You say, not if I close my eyes. Sure you are. You're looking at the back of your eyelids. Your eyeballs are always working. If you're conscious, if you're uh, conscious, if you're awake, you're always looking at something. So the question then is this. If you're looking at Him, that keeps a lot of garbage out that would otherwise be in your field of vision. The best strategy is not merely to purge any possibility of anything. And, and I'm not saying that's altogether bad strategy. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the psalmist committed that he would uh, not set his eyes on any wicked thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that the, the winning strategy here is not just to say, I'm going to push everything bad out. We should uh, think on things that are pure and lovely and of good report. But I'm saying the way that we do that is by fixing our focus upon him. Uh, chances are, if we find ourselves ready to throw in the towel and quit out of discouragement, we've been looking at the wrong thing. If we find ourselves beginning to sink, it's because we've been looking at the wrong thing. I'm not fussing at you. I'm trying to tell you how we can get help. I'm not saying that I've never done it. I'm not saying I've never got my eyes off Jesus. I'm just I'm not fussing at you. I'm just telling you. You don't want to sink. Keep your eyes on Him. But now those inevitable times when we do go to sink, what do we do? Verse 31, the Bible says, well, verse 30, when he was beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. That was the right thing to do. And immediately, immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hands and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didn't thou doubt? There's a lot we could say about that, but can I just make a real simple observation? Uh, so some things we ought to do. We ought to look for his return. We ought to pursue a closeness with him. We ought to keep moving forward in faith. We ought to maintain our focus on him. But then we ought to reach for him when we're sinking. Because there will come a day for you, just as there are days for me, when we are sinking. We all focus on what Peter did wrong. Men are more, more apt to remember your mistakes than your successes. And we do that with Peter as well. We don't think of Peter as the one that walked on the water. We think of Peter as the one that took his eyes off Jesus. <laughs> Truth is, ain't nobody else but can have nerve enough to climb out of that boat. I don't know that I would have. Peter did. And he did something else right when he began to sink. He reached out. He cried out. My, maybe it's a better way to say it. I, we actually have no record of, of Peter reaching for him. Jesus reached for Peter. But why did that happen? Because he cried out, Lord, save me. We all have days we feel like we're sinking. We feel like the discouragement is just weighing on us. and We wonder when anything, everything's going to get any better. And, and we just we, we get weary. I don't care who you are, we get weary. What do we do in those days? Well, we lean especially on the Lord and we cry out to Him. Go to the prayer closet. Tell the Lord all about every problem that you've got. Uh, pour out your complaint to uh, you know, Ask Him to give you the help and the strength that you need. How rarely do we avail ourselves of that? And how foolish are we for letting it be so rare? Uh, Peter, one of the things he did right was the moment he began to sink. He didn't wait till his feet touched bottom. The moment he began to sink, he began to cry out to the Lord. 
That's what we have to do. And then notice with me, just sort of in passing, and I, I'm pretty much done, but look at the conclusion of the passage. So we've talked about the context. We've talked about the counsel from this passage. But I just see some encouraging thoughts in the last two verses of what we read. I see the conclusion of this passage, and I'm reminded of two amazing, beautiful, encouraging truths. Verse 32 says this, When they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And it's a reminder to me that the storms will subside. Now, I'm not telling you it's going to get better on this side of, of, of glory. Now, I, I, and listen, my eschatology, it ain't perfect, but it's brushed up on a little bit. I understand we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. We're going to spend it on a new earth. And I understand what I'm saying is this. I'm not saying it's going to get better on this side of Jesus coming back. I'm not saying it's going to get better for you and I on this side of the grave, if that's how God chooses for us to leave this life. But I am saying that there's more on the other side of those things. And there's coming a day the storms will subside. It may not be in this life. Can I say it's not likely to be in this life? I was maybe a vain delusion to ever believe that it would be that way in this life. Far too often Christians have, with their dogma, preached one thing. And then with, with, their, with their mind frame preached something else. I'm not saying it's going to get better on this side of things, But I'm saying there is a land where no storm clouds can get. And I'm saying there's coming a day the storms will subside. This, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you know the Lord is your Savior, this is not the end, and it's certainly not the best. We could suggest that this and whatever experiences we may have between now and the Lord's return, or now and our, our leaving this world by way of death, that whatever that encompasses is the worst, not the best. And thank the Lord it's not the best. The best is yet to come. So I notice the storms will subside. And then I notice the second thing. Look at verse 33. The Bible says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. I see that the storms will subside, but I also see this, Brother Charlie, the sun will be glorified. There were things in this passage that went exactly as they should have. There were things in this passage that did not go the way that they should have. Certainly, Peter undoubtedly would have wished that he had not taken his eyes off of Jesus. But what I find fascinating is that God worked all of this in, in spectacular manner and in perfection in such a way that whenever everything was said and done, everybody stood around and said, now this right here, this man Jesus, he's the Son of God. And I would just encourage and remind you of this, that it's true that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to His purpose. It is equally true that the Bible tells us that God is working all things together for the glory of the Father and for the glory of the Son. That our entire life is designated and designed in such a way that we might be to the praise of His glory uh, who, who loved us. And I'm saying that in your life and mine, whatever turmoil we may find ourselves in, and this is true in a broad sense of where our world is at, but listen, friend, this this is true in your life. This is true about the financial problem you're having. This is true about the health problem you're having. This is true about the family or relationship problem you're having. Whatever it is, God is working that storm in such a way that if we'll merely trust in Him, depend on Him, keep our eyes on Him, then at the end of every bit of it, whether in this life or the life to come, there will come a day when men will stand around and say, He doeth all things well. He did it exactly how it should have been done. 
Man, we got a lot to be encouraged about tonight, don't we? Let's bow together. Father, I pray that you would bless this invitation. I pray that your people would respond in obedience to you. May we gain encouragement from the truth of your word. And may we, Lord, submit our hearts unto your working in these times. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name.